Thank you for downloading our podcast. This Christmas season, we consider Luke's testimony of Christ. Luke sets out to write an orderly account so that his friend Theophilus can be certain regarding the things he has been taught. What is Luke fundamentally teaching us about the significance of Christ and Christ's entrance into history? This morning, we arrive at the narrative of Christ's birth, and it's most likely, I imagine, for many of us, a very familiar story, which I hope it is as we grow up in the church, that this is something that's very familiar. I'm very thankful that I can stand here and simply assert uh, the virgin birth of Christ and the incarnation of Christ and not have to uh, make a defense for that. That certainly is something to be very thankful for, that as we gather together that these are things we we certainly know and expect in this story, and, and we know that this is true. But when we look at this story, it's always challenging to try and make it something where we, we want to once again engage with it, because one of the downsides is it becomes so familiar that, that we miss the, the glorious story that is before us. And what our Lord has done as, as our Redeemer. But as we look at this, I want us to remember a couple things. That when Mary sings her song, the, the reminder, where does Mary end? Not only in the context of her song, but prior to the song. The song emphasizes her humility. And where does she end when the angel delivers a glorious message that she will be the means used to bring the Messiah into history. It is a contentment to be the Lord's servant. And we see that, that this is underscored in what Christ is doing and how Christ enters history. Luke sets the stage of a, a peasant home, a peasant family, not people in a prestigious line, and it's important. God is sovereign. God in his providence could have had anyone bring in the Messiah. I mean, he's certainly limited in the line in the house of David, but within that lineage, he could choose anyone. Could have been Zechariah and Elizabeth. We saw their prestige, didn't we? But yet we see that it's in this peasant home. And so when we look at this and, and we think about the reality of this, we think, wow, we've come a long ways. We have Solomon, who has a queen of, of Shiva, who wants to to search him out and to send great gifts to see his wisdom. And then we look at where Christ is born. Not in a glorious palace, not in a glorious, prestigious people, if you will, but through peasants. With, by and large, in Luke's story, the, the focus of being on a woman, Mary. And so when we think about this, we say, how does this truly confirm the promise of God that this Christ child is really going to be the Savior. How can this truly be the case? So as we look at this, we'll see first the Messiah cast off. We'll see secondly how the Messiah is ironically celebrated. And we'll conclude in our last point with the Messiah being contemplated, thinking about the implications of this. And so let's begin with the Messiah being cast off, setting the stage of the story, verses 1 through 7. Now, there's a couple of things that we may have in our minds that can cloud our judgment in the story. 
One notion is we can assume that Joseph is one who is an incompetent planner, or maybe the city is so full that there's no end. The reality is, when you look at the words that are used in, in the crafting of this narrative, again, we assume Luke is being deliberate, he writes to Theophilus, and he's writing a deliberate account. So his words have meaning. He, he's choosing them with a purpose as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But as he chooses them, the actual language that's used here is not a commercial end. Uh, we do find this language in Luke 10, verse 35, where we have the Good Samaritan who pays a manager of the inn, an actual uh, terminology used there for a commercial, basically hotel, motel, that he pays. But here we actually have the same word in 2, verse 7, used in Luke 22, verse 11. And where it's used there is where they celebrate the Passover in the spare room. So what you would have in these ancient Near Eastern peasant homes is you would have basically uh, two stories going on. So you have like a main living area. You would have a stable that would be attached to the main living area. Uh, what would happen there is you would want to, or, or the farmer, it depends on how big of a farmer, but usually not what we think in America having acres and acres and acres of land. But they would have their animals in the stable that would uh, be open to the house. Not necessarily the animals are, are roaming around the house, but, you know, and kind of we think of it as sort of having a, a cutout window. And the purpose of that is that the farmer would get some of the heat off the animal during the night. The other reason for it is it would prevent uh, the animal from being stolen in the night. During the day, they would put the animal outside. The stable would be cleaned, uh, so it would be sanitary. So that's the backdrop of what's going on here. The, the spare room then, you would have the main floor, you would have where the family stays, and then you would have a staircase going up, and then you would have your spare room. So what's going on here is that it would be a relative of Joseph that would have this spare room. So that's what we got to kind of put in our mind. The other story that people might have in our minds is we have a story of where you have the house backed into a cave, and the cave would be a stable. Now, that's not necessarily far off. There, there's situations where they would build their homes into caves. But the narrative there, or, or the story there, is that Joseph is going out trying to find another place, and poor Mary is there by herself. Uh, this really misses uh, the culture of the ancient Near East, it's a hospitality culture. That wouldn't have happened when Mary would have given birth. Uh, we think of uh, the person who's either the, the wife or husband uh, in the home who's hosting the family would go out and get the, the midwife of the village. They'd bring the midwife home, the men would clear out of the room, and then uh, the, the wife or, or the, the woman who's uh, delivering the baby would have the privacy with the midwife and, and probably just a small company of women. So it's not Mary being alone. So now that we, we try to clear our minds of these conceptions and we look at the story, we have this scenario that's going on here. We have Caesar Augustus. Now, again, if you're familiar with some liberal theology, uh, people try and discredit the story by saying there was no national registration that, that went out. But it is kind of interesting or, or significant when you look at this narrative. 
Luke doesn't belabor that point. But he does make explicit that Nazareth is a city of David. Now the city of David, Nazareth, to a Jewish reader, would know that Nazareth is a city of David. You, you wouldn't have to make that explicit. Or uh, Bethlehem, where David is born, that city of David. And also being in a district of Nazareth. That's not something you would have to deliberate or, or make deliberate uh, to a Jewish reader. But for a Gentile reader, you would have to make that deliberate. And so here we have just the assertion that decree went out. So we think of Theophilus being the one who knows of this decree. Uh, Caesar Augustus was Octavian Caesar, probably, or some would say, I'm sure there's others that would disagree with it, but some would say that he's sort of a benevolent dictator. I'm sure there's other people uh, who were sort of forced into the Roman Empire that may not see him very benevolent. But whatever the case, I'm sure you can find some conflict. Well, you can find conflict in history, but whatever the case, this is the first emperor of Rome. So Caesar Augustus literally means Caesar increasing. Uh, that's why his name was changed to Augustus. So his power, his authority has increased. Now, what would happen with this registration? So somebody comes to you and says, oh, there's a problem in Luke's gospel. We don't have this record of a registration. This is a contradiction to world history. Well, when Luke simply mentions this, this would mean that Theophilus would say, yeah, I, I remember that census. Because what would happen is basically you would have Caesar say, we need to take a census. Now the problem is, as Americans, we think in our culture, we, we have mass mailing, we have television to do advertising, we have advertisements on the internet that tell us it's time uh, for the census, we have email, right? So there's all these means of almost instant communication. That's not the case here. So what would happen is there would be a decree, Caesar would say, we need to take a census, and I expect governors of your particular district to report by whenever. And so it's not going to be instantaneous, instantaneous, but there is a decree that goes out and Theophilus who receives this letter would say, oh yeah, I, I remember that. That's why I'd argue Luke isn't belaboring the point. Theophilus would know this. And so it's sort of an, an irrelevant point that people try to use to discredit the Christmas story. So let's not go there. The reality is, Caesar has called for this registration. Now, in order for Joseph to maintain his land, he would have to respond to the census. So, uh, Joseph, being a resident of Bethlehem, in the district of Nazareth, Joseph would probably, he may have some family land, he may aspire to farm it. Uh, we, we don't know the whole backstory here. Luke doesn't tell us. Really none of our business, uh, to be honest. But whatever the case, Joseph is compelled to make sure that he is counted in this census. Now we know that Joseph is of the lineage of David. So Joseph, being one in the lineage of David, he's going to be a celebrity in this town. So it's important to understand that as well. He's not going to have to go to a commercial inn. Uh, if an immediate relative is not able to take him in, somebody else in that town would be more than willing to take Joseph um, and, and house him and host him. Again, we think of the hosting culture. We, we read of this in Genesis where Abram 
or Abraham at that time, has the strangers who come. It's the angel of the Lord, two other angels. And what does Abraham do? Well, he slaughters a calf, he feeds them, uh, and he makes sure that they have food from their journey. He, he takes care of them, even though he doesn't know them. And so that's the reality here. Joseph's not one who's going door to door. What's most likely the, the scene here is that if Joseph is looking for a place to stay, and as he's traveling, uh, we can imagine that uh, uh, a pregnant woman, most likely in eight months along, getting to maybe eight and a half months along, uh, the, the thought of her traveling on a donkey, I'm sure women here, if your husband suggested that, you'd probably be tempted to gouge out the eyes potentially, right? I mean, that doesn't sound like a very fun journey. We think of doing this in a climate-controlled vehicle, and it's got enough of its own challenges. So you think about Joseph and Mary taking this journey. It's not going to go as quickly as it normally would be expected, right? I mean, uh, there's obviously complications here with Mary being so far along in the pregnancy. Again, most likely eight months, eight and a half around that time. So as they travel, they're probably going to arrive at their destination, Bethlehem, late at night. So what's most likely happened is Joseph's uh, relatives probably had somebody else knock on the door, coming into town for the census, and they said, well, you know, Joseph's coming, but he's not here yet. And again, you don't have cell phones, you don't have an immediate way to communicate. We're running late, but we're still en route. They don't know. Maybe Joseph decided not to... Uh, participate in the census. We, we don't know. Whatever the case, as they show up to the house, the guest room is taken. And so this means that Joseph and Mary are to be staying out uh, in the main room. And, and you think about the relatives, again, the, the humanness of the story sometimes we miss. Uh, the relatives, you would think, well, if she's really carrying the Messiah, why doesn't the person in the guest room give up the room? Well, if you have a relative come to you and say that this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit, I'm sure you're really going to believe that story. And so you can understand that, that the family is sort of looking at them a little squint-eyed and saying, okay, I, I guess this could happen. Uh, probably unlikely, but it could happen. And, and so that's what's going on. So if we say, well, why don't they give up the guest room? Why doesn't the host of the family give up their room? Well, they probably don't believe the full story of what Joseph has said. And so there's, there's some speculation there that something else might be going on that's not a, above board as uh, Joseph is making it sound. So as they go, and it's time for her to give birth, we have this, this note that um, Jesus is wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now again, this is what you would find with the peasants all the way up to the elite. Uh, this shows that he's welcomed, that he's loved, and he's loved by this peasant family. But there is a subtlety that goes on here and why I wanted to go to Ezekiel. And I thought about reading Ezekiel 16 uh, for the Old Testament reading, but I thought on Christmas Day that's not the most encouraging. Because Ezekiel 16 has a warning with Israel that they're going to be so cast off that they're not going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. That is part of their curse. So you have a, a picture here of Christ, most possibly with this echo going back to a cursed language, of this child that's not born as a cursed child, in the sense that there is something about this child who's rejected 
uh, by his home city, rejected by his hometown in the sense that people don't just say, oh, take my room, but yet he still has a swaddling claw showing this love. He is not cursed by the living God. Now this lying in the manger, when I already laid out the, the scene, you would have the troughs possibly in the main room where you would have the animals being able to reach over in the stall or the half wall, whatever you want to call it, and being able to eat from these feeding troughs. So again, these would be cleaned out every day. Uh, it's not like this is something that's unsanitary, and so this becomes a makeshift crib. So this would again be the, the midwife, the women gathering around, making sure Mary's comfortable, she delivers a baby, and then the, the men would be allowed to come back in at some point. So we close with that scene. We have Joseph, Mary, other relatives most likely, other ladies from the community gathered around just making sure that, that everything's going well uh, with Mary and this newborn infant. Well, now we, we skip out into the field. So the implication is we're going out to the country. And as we go out to the country, there's these shepherds who are outside the town of Bethlehem. Now, as we've mentioned before with the shepherds, they do not have a reputation for truth-telling, right? It's always easy to tell when they're lying. It's difficult to tell when they're telling the truth. I haven't quite figured out that tell yet. I mean, that's who the shepherds are. The shepherds were not allowed to give testimony in court uh, because their, their tales were so tall you, know, you couldn't tell what was, what was truth and what was fiction. So these are not credible individuals. Another thing that's kind of shocking when you look at the social order for the Israelites or for the Jews at this time, that the, the shocking reality is you would have the shepherds being the, the lowest of the low in terms of society and pecking order. They, they were not people you would turn to in times of need or to really find out something about the scriptures or, or something spiritual or something significant. They're, they're lacking serious credibility. They're not respected by society. They are the peasants of the peasants. But the other thing to note that I always marvel at this when you read the stories of David and the stories of the shepherds, these are manly men. These are men who fight off lions and bears with slingshots or their bare hands. I mean, that, that is a pretty impressive thing to think about, of who these men are, that, that they will take on a wild animal to defend their sheep. These are not wimps. These are not cowards. And it's important to understand this picture of a shepherd, of not being this sort of slender type individual, kind of meandering on a hike. I mean, this, this is a, a man who's burly, a man who a lion jumps out, is willing to go and face off with this animal, even if he just has a staff or just his bare hands and to go and take this thing on. That's pretty impressive. So when you have this setting of this man set in this context, and then you have this declaration that Luke tells us that they have great fear when they see the angel standing before them. I mean, it's, it's, I really wonder what this must have been like. I mean, to really contemplate, what, like, what is that like? Here are these guys 
who will face off with wild animals, hearing these, these howl, strange howls throughout the night and being able to sleep, not worried about their well-being. And then they see an angel and they're terrified. I mean, this must have been some impressive being. And you think about the glory of the Lord shining around them. So the implication is they're in a field, looking up at a starlit night, normal night, lit by the stars, dark, most likely laying down, and boom, all of a sudden the whole field lights up, like all of a sudden it's a ball game or something. You know, you think of a stadium with the lights, deep darkness, all of a sudden you can see everything clearly. That's rather frightening. And as they stand here, or, or lie here, and, and they have the angel, what does the angel say? Fear not. I mean, isn't that something marvelous, telling us already about the ministry of Christ? Fear not. Well, I don't know what you're going to do to me. I mean, you just lit up the field. You're twice my size, and here you are standing before me. What am I supposed to do with this? The angel says, don't be afraid. Fear not. Because why? What does he promise? The promise as he brings good news. So you think of Moses coming down from Sinai with his face glowing, right? And how they have to put a veil on Moses because the Israelites are so terrified to look at the heavenly glow. Here, the shepherds, the lowlifes, if you will, as we would say in our society, these are not respectable people, are invited to look upon the angel. And not to cover their eyes and not to veil themselves, but to look upon the holiness of heaven standing before them. And they are invited to hear the good news. I mean, you do not bring good news or uh, credible stories to these men. No one's going to believe what they have to say. This is not your witness um, pool that, that you want to, to go into town and say, hey, guess what happened last night? You know, people are going to say, wow, that's a pretty wild story from a shepherd, right? But nevertheless, they're invited to look upon heaven's glory. And the sign is that they're going to see this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So again, it's not Mary being alone. It's not Joseph being incompetent. This is a baby that is loved, a baby that is cared for. And there's going to be something unique about this baby. Because they say, okay, well, there's a baby in a manger. That is maybe somewhat strange I, I don't know I mean there's a lot of people in town but whatever but the angel goes on and notice what happens and this is so important in the context Caesar Augustus Caesar increasing Caesar bringing Pax Romana Caesar the glorious one that you have here the glorious heavenly assembly joining with this one angel singing praise to God I mean, it's a scene in Isaiah where Isaiah is terrified, saying, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I shouldn't be here. He's not even a low-life shepherd, and Isaiah is overwhelmed like that. Here you have these men standing before the heavenly glory, the heavenly assembly that has come out of heaven, comes down to earth, visits the earthlings, and sings praise to God. And the implications are invited to join with them singing praise to who God is, and also identifying who the Savior is. Notice in verse 11 who the Savior is. Unto you this day, Isaiah 9, verse 6, the very promise of the one who is to come, who has titles, and who is going to be born as a unique Savior. And who is he? Well, it goes on. 
Uh, he is given a son. The government's on his shoulder. He has the burden of rule, basically. And he's going to not be a benevolent dictator like, like Caesar tries to be, but truly will rule. Wonderful counselor, qualification of one who receives divine counsel is the language here, the wording here. He doesn't need to search it out. He just possesses it. Mighty God, so we've already talked about how the Lord humbles uh, the exalted and he exalts the humble in the song of Mary. So we have those themes coming to mind. Everlasting father, one who never ends. The father of his people, the true giver of life. The prince of peace, the prince of shalom. So Caesar tries to bring world peace. This is telling us that the one born to the peasant family that was barely accepted into a home or barely found a place to stay is the one who's going to establish true shalom. Remember, that's the wholeness of being restored to God. And so the reality is this marvelous thing happens. They hear the angels sing, the fields lit up, all of a sudden it goes dark and the angels are gone. And so we're left with, what are these men going to do? We, we have this, this glorious announcement that's going on with, with Christ. What do they do? Well, we don't find much immediate contemplation, do we? And this is something that's contrary to Zacharias. So you have the prestigious priest in the temple singing or, or receiving the revelation from Gabriel where the Lord's overcoming barrenness. Again, something God has done Several times we, we find in covenant history, and yet he questions God. Here we have the shepherds who have seen this, this incredible event that they've obviously never seen before in their life, and, and most likely I doubt they've ever seen again. And they gather together, instead of saying, how can this be? Was that real? Uh, maybe we shouldn't have put so many beans in the chili or something like that before we ate it. No. Immediately, they respond in faith. They say, we got to go to Bethlehem and see what's happened. Obviously, something majestic has transpired here. But notice, when the angel never says Bethlehem, right? Remember I asserted at the beginning of the sermon, Theophilus would know of the census, but Theophilus wouldn't know that Bethlehem is titled the city of David. The angels say, city of David, and here we have the shepherds saying, oh, we got to go to Bethlehem, which tells us these are Jewish shepherds. They're, they're expecting the Messiah. So now we're, we're getting some insight into their understanding. They've been taught about the Messiah. They're looking to the Messiah. And so they go to Bethlehem. And as they go and as they, they find this, sure enough, you know, they're most likely asking around in the town, hey, do you know of a young maiden who's given birth? Uh, do you know of anyone that's given birth this evening? And of course, people in the town in this village are going to say, oh yeah, Joseph and Mary, they're staying over, over here in this home. So they go and they find the baby lying in a manger, as the angels have said. And as they go, they know this is not accidental. Indeed, this is a revelation of God. And as they go on and, and they look for the sign, they recognize who this Christ is. But as they bear witness, and, and again, this is something in the story that, that we can miss if we don't have this cultural significance, that the story that the shepherds tell is obviously so radical, so extreme, 
But as the people hear it, they're most likely saying, this is a story that's even too extreme for shepherds to even think up at night. I mean, how, how could they conceive of this? But we do find with this rumination in verse 17, as the crowds hear it, that the shepherds make it known, the people wonder about this in verse 18 and wonder what the shepherds are saying. Well, this wondering in, uh, in the Greek language could actually be a cynical rumination where you say, yeah, whatever, the, I, I don't believe this, this isn't true, and you're trying to discredit it. Or it could be just a true contemplation where you say, well, what, what does this mean, right? I mean, if this is true, what are the implications of it? And, and, and how does this work out? And, and what, what are the true deeper implications of this thing? So that wondering can be either way. It's trying to discredit or trying to understand who the Messiah is. We do find this where the people wonder about Zachariah's display. We find it where people see miracles of Christ and, and they marvel at it. They, they wonder what is going on. But we also find it in Luke's gospel with the Pharisees where Christ does something. They wonder about it in the sense that they're trying to figure out how they're going to destroy it or discredit what Christ is doing because they don't want to affirm uh, that Christ is the Messiah. And so the reality is we don't know how this is received by the people in the room. Because some may say, well, these are shepherds. Maybe they did come up with a great story. Others are probably saying, maybe the testimony Joseph and Mary were telling us about the Holy Spirit bringing about this child is real. Maybe this really is the Christ child who was promised. And so the implication was saying that we don't know how the people in the house are reacting. It could be either way. But the reality in Luke's gospel is he's basically hitting us with it and saying, how do you marvel about the Christ? Do you understand he's a Messiah? Or do you go with the cynics and say, well, he's not really the Christ because he doesn't measure up to my Christ and how I want my Christ to be. Whatever the case, Luke is saying, it's an invitation for us to marvel at the testimony of Christ in what he is writing, and to think about him as Messiah. But notice Mary. And this is something that I think also is worthy of calling to our attention. We find her reaction. Now, she doesn't say, look at me. Look at who I am, that I've done this great thing, that even these shepherds storm through the door and praise me. But it's rather going back to what she has said to the angel, a contentment to be the servant of the Most High. That even Mary is contemplating what's going on, quietly pondering them to herself. What does it mean that this is a Christ? What does it mean that he has entered history? What does it mean that he has come to redeem such a lowly people? And what a wonderful story, isn't it? The shepherds, outcasts, hear the story. Peasant people, a peasant woman, where it seems that even the story of Joseph and Mary isn't fully embraced. And yet we find that the Lord still comes to them, works out his plan, and continues to carry out his purpose of redemption. But we're reminded then in verse 21 
that this child is not just a child of the people, by the people, from the people, of, you know, etc. This is a child that is still from God. And it's a child who receives his name from the Lord, Jesus. Luke doesn't belabor this as much as Matthew's account, but the point is still there. He lives up to this name. Yahweh saves. That's what the name Jesus means. So thinking about the implications of the story, we begin with this question, how do we really know that Jesus is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who enters history as the Lord's Messiah? How, how do we know that when it seems that Joseph's own family doesn't embrace him maybe as warmly as we would expect and that they give up a more prestigious room for him? Well, the reality is he is the one who comes to an unworthy people. The story that Luke is writing to Theophilus, a, a great, uh, most likely a prestigious official in the Roman Empire, he's saying to Theophilus, it doesn't matter how prestigious we may think we are. It doesn't matter how much we may think we've accomplished in this life. It doesn't matter how we try to define ourselves. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have a work ethic, and I'm not saying we shouldn't challenge ourselves. These, these are great things to do as human people and, and redeemed in Christ and, and living out what it means to be in the image of God. But what this is calling us to understand is a whole different perspective on life. It's understanding it doesn't start with my tasks, my deeds, my accomplishments what I have done. It starts with who is Christ? What has my Redeemer done? Who am I in Christ? Do I embrace him as the ultimate Savior and bow my knee before him? Now it's in that we begin to challenge ourselves and seek to do better and seek to live out our redemption for his honor and glory. But it has to start with bowing the knee before the great Redeemer and understanding we are like the shepherds, we are like the peasants, we are nothing in the kingdom apart from Christ. But yet in Christ, we have every access to the kingdom. I know I've used it before, but I love how John Murray puts it. That when you think about the redemptive blessings, we think about the blessing of adoption. Jesus born among the common peasant people. He doesn't come to the kings. He could have been born in the king's palace. But he comes to the peasant people. That what does this tell us? It tells us what I think John Murray puts so well. That when we think about the blessings of redemption, we move from the courtroom to the family room of God. In terms of our adoption, in terms of our redemption, we are in the presence of the Most High. Because Jesus Christ has humbled himself to the most lowly position and has been exalted to glory. And where does the gospel end? Zechariah can't pronounce a blessing and ends with Christ giving a blessing to his people and going to heaven. Let us then, as we join together on this Christmas day, marvel at what Christ has done. He doesn't see himself as being born in the comforts of the elite, which God could have set up, God could have done in his providence. That's not how he does it. He's born to a peasant people, born in a peasant home. 
having un dis uh, witnesses that are easy to discredit bear witness to the reality of his entrance into history. Let us recognize that Christianity is not for the prestigious, it's not for the worthy, it's not for the glorious. It is God who comes to a people who are not prestigious, to a people who are not worthy, to a people who do not deserve glory, and gives it all to us in Christ. Let us see the beauty of our redemption and our Redeemer and what he has done. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.